You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome along. Wonderful to see you again. Come on in for another bonanza journey through classic movies and radio with me. We've got an uplifting show for you this week. Nothing but positive vibes in the company of the likes of Monty Woolley, Basil Rathbone, Robert Montgomery, Josephine Hutchinson, and this special lady, the eternal Miss Judy Garland. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. Garland with Get Happy. You heard her. Before we go on, very excited to tell you that the film festival is shaping up to be a wonderful weekend. So many amazing movies coming up, so mark your calendars. The 24th and 25th of October. Saturday is open to everyone. Sunday is patrons only. 
So plenty of time to sign up if you want the full experience. Just click the link in the show notes now or go to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret if you want to do that. Film Club, which is one of the many rewards you get as a patron, has begun a new initiative. Beginning last week, we are traveling through the Golden Age years once a week. You guys are voting for a movie from a year in sequence, and we watch the winner every Sunday evening. So last week was 1930, and you guys chose The Divorcee, starring Norma Shearer. I have to say, I think definitely a few dozen new Norma admirers emerged from the other side. If the votes carry on the way they're going, then it'll be Norma again this week. The vote is between six movies this week. So movies from 1931 this time. And you guys are choosing from Little Caesar, A Free Soul, Frankenstein, The Public Enemy, Cimarron, and Dracula. Quite a tough choice. But I think that such was the allure of Miss Shearer that she's doing very well. A Free Soul is out in front. If you want a different choice, then sign up at Patreon and get voting now. I don't do this often enough, but I wanted to give a shout out to some other podcasts this week. Now, I'm fairly certain that I will leave someone out. So if I do, please drop me a message and I'll be happy to call out your show on this one. My brain is like a sieve, I do apologise. And it has to store a lot of information at any one time. So inevitably, something falls out of the back. Anyway, for now, I think you should all check out Rated H, the horror podcast with Ben and Smokey, Amicus Lies Here, a show devoted to Amicus horror movies, Film Guff with Kev, Nick and Ali, The Shamley Silhouette, a series devoted to the life and work of Alfred Hitchcock, Fix It Home Improvement with my good friends JC and Cindy, Anywhere But Here for all your current affairs with Ant and Tom, Band Biographies, also hosted by Tom. Monsoon Jackson, the sci-fi detective series. Real Britannia, hosted by my good friends Scott and Stephen. Stinking Paws, also hosted by Scott, with Paul this time. The Talking Pictures TV podcast, my former stamping grounds, which is now hosted by Mel and Daniel. Oh, and Scott yet again. And Rainbow Valley, which is a documentary series about the 1960s. And guess who hosts that one? Yes, Scott again. So basically, what we've learned today is that Scott is the Forrest Gump of podcasting. He's everywhere, all through our history. We just didn't realize it. How's about a competition now? Yes, this is one packed show, all right. One of the finest writers out there. Mr. Martin Turnbull, someone who gave me lots of help with the Shadows series for The Secret History of Hollywood, has written a new novel based on the life of Irving Thalberg. It's called The Heart of a Lion, and it's about to come out. But Martin has very kindly offered a signed paperback copy as a prize for one of you lucky folks. So what I want you to do is click the competition link in the show notes of this episode, and there you will find the blurred-out face of one of Hollywood's most famous stars. All you have to do is identify that Golden Age star and submit your answer using the form below the image. I'll draw the winner in a few weeks' time, so get guessing now. Sticking with Miss Garland for this edition now, though, let's keep those spirits high. I heard of 
And that was the peerless Judy Garland again with Over the Rainbow, one of those forgotten songs from the golden age that no one's ever really heard of. So if you're a patron slash co-producer, then you may well have heard the radio play I offered last week, an adaptation of the 1942 movie The Pied Piper. Now, Frank Morgan played the lead in the radio version, but in the original movie, it was Monty Woolley in the lead role. I couldn't find a copy of this movie to actually watch. There's a very atrocious version on the tube sites, but it's pretty much unwatchable, so I held out hope for a good copy coming to light. Very strange that there isn't a version of this out there in the world anywhere. After all, it's directed by Irving Pitchell, former actor who turned director. He directed things like The Most Dangerous Game, Produced and written by Nunnally Johnson, he of Woman in the Window fame and many others. In leading roles, you have Woolley, who was nominated for the Best Actor Oscar for his role here. Roddy McDowell plays one of the children. Otto Preminger, the man who went on to direct things like Laura and Anatomy of a Murder, here playing a Gestapo officer. I mean, this thing has a pedigree to be envious of, so why can't you see it? You can't even buy it. It's most odd. But anyway, I did manage to find a copy, a watchable copy, a quite good copy, as it turns out, and it is delightful, so I thought I'd tell you about it today. We are well out of it. Let them have their war if they want it. Let them die for whatever it is they are fighting for. You can see for yourself, it was a great mistake for us to try to fight Hitler. He's too strong. Yeah, we should have made terms with him when we had the chance. Meanwhile, we here, we're pretty lucky. They'll never fight here this far south. And for you and me at our age, that's a very comforting thought. Are you finished? We, oui, monsieur. Then allow me to inform you, sir. 
that if ever again you address one word to me in any way, shape or form, I shall take the greatest of pleasure in thrashing you within an inch of your life, regardless of your age. So Woolley plays a cantankerous old English gent, Professor Howard, who's holidaying in France when the war kicks off properly. Despite his dislike of children, he nevertheless takes on the task of escorting two youngsters, Ronnie and Sheila, played by Roddy McDowell and Peggy Ann Garner, back to England and to safety. Myself, I'm not afraid, nor my husband. It's the children we're thinking of. Well, hasn't he thought of sending you and them somewhere where you'd be safe? I wouldn't leave him. If, if anything happened, we'd want to be together when it happened. Of course. But the children... Mr. Howard, would you take them with you back to England? Do what? And so begins the adventures as Howard tries his best to get the kids to safety across the dangers of a France being slowly overtaken. Along the way, as the title would suggest, the group keeps on accumulating more children, all looking for a way to safety. But, monsieur, you didn't have these last summer. Madame, some of these I did not have 24 hours ago. The simplest explanation would be to say that I seem to accumulate them. But allow me. Madame Rougeron, Mademoiselle Nicole Rougeron, this is Ronald, fine lad. This is his sister, Sheila. This is Rose. This is Pierre. And this is... We seem to have a new one. Matters culminate when the group are caught by the Gestapo, who mistake Howard for a spy. How will they escape and get across the channel to safety? Genuinely adored this movie. I sometimes find these war adventure yarns a little bit tiresome, but what this one cleverly does is inject just the right amount of pathos, just the right amount of humor, just the right amount of intrigue at the exact points at which they're needed. Woolley is one of those great screen presences, always played the same character, an irascible elderly scholar type who barks and snipes his way through the film. Kind of a bombastic version of Clifton Webb, but who manages to keep the right side of lovable. It's the same thing here, but as the protector of children, the characterization becomes a lot more relatable and heroic. There are moments in this film that stole my breath away. There's a scene where a caravan of refugees are attacked, and it's as brutal as any war film being made in this period with some stellar special effects. It climaxes with a really quite upsetting revelation. And yet moments later, Woolly is making you laugh through your tears. It has a lot to say about right wing versus left wing, about doubt and fear and occupation. It manages to be tense and thrilling, even as it plays as high comedy. It's something of a marvel of a movie, and I'm so glad I managed to find a copy to watch. I won't spoil what happens in the plot, because what happens is really moving, and I think you need to experience it for yourselves. As I say, it's tremendously difficult to get hold of, which baffles me, as it's really wonderful. And so I will definitely be showing The Pied Piper at the film festival in October, because I think you'll all really dig it. It's a film that's full of heart, full of soul, incredibly well-written and acted. If you can see it beforehand, I highly recommend tracking down The Pied Piper from 1942. But if not, fear not, as I'll be playing it at October's film festival. On to 1935's Kind Lady, starring Basil Rathbone 
and Aline McMahon with Donald Meek, Dudley Diggs, Murray Cannell and Frank Albertson. Great cast, but is it any good? Here's a clip. I wonder what the little lady is that lives in that house. She always gives me half a crown. She must be a very generous woman. She is. Kindest little lady whatever you saw. She'd have been at that window long ago if, if she'd been home. It's nice and warm in there. Nice roaring fire and a cup of tea, eh? Yes. Yes, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Basil plays Henry Abbott, an aspiring artist who inveigled his way into the home and good graces of wealthy Miss Herries, played by Aline McMahon. Are you an artist? Not really. One of many confused talents. You see, collecting was once my main interest. Now I find it very comforting to remember it when I'm standing in the breadline on the embankment. But it's unbelievable that a man like you... I bothered you tonight because the two odd miles to the embankment seemed to stretch like eternity in the snow. I'm glad you did. I too. From here, things take a decided turn for the sinister as Abbott insidiously takes over the household, installing not just himself and his wife as masters of the house, but his oily, obnoxious comrades too. Now, Miss Harris, these are Ada's friends. Mr. and Mrs. Edwards and their daughter, Aggie. How do you do, ma'am? We've just seen Ada. My, isn't she a sight? It occurred to me upstairs, uh, Miss Harris, since Cook has left us, I'd like to take the liberty of recommending Mrs. Edwards. Now, in And with Aggie to help, if Rose insists on going, I thought we could struggle along for a while. Thank you. I won't need anyone. I'm planning to close the house and go away for a while. Rose is coming with me. Really, Miss Harris? I'm glad your friends are here. They can help you move Ada. I'll hire an ambulance, if you like. But where shall I take her? Take her home. I would willingly, but uh, unfortunately, we have no home. Uh, we've been dispossessed. Surely these friends have oh, That's a good idea, ma'am. Why, there ain't room enough to swing a cat in. Papa coughs all night anyway. Keep quiet, Aggie. I'm afraid your troubles can't concern me any longer. Take Ada any place you wish. That's a pretty hard way to talk, Miss Aries. I don't wish to discuss it any further. Please get Ada out of here today. You are making it very difficult, Miss Harris. I believed your bad luck stories, and I've done everything in my power to help you. I think it's pretty obvious that you've imposed upon me in the crudest way. I'm sorry you think that. The balance of power slowly shifts, with poor Miss Harris being kept a prisoner in her own home. How will she manage to escape from the evil grasp of Abbott and his plan? Nonsense, what do you want of me? What about my pay for all these weeks? Your pay? His pay. When the time comes to pie, you must pie. Oh, oh. <laughs> Rose! Rome! Rome! Why, Rose stepped out to post a letter, didn't she, Doc? Yes. Oh, please, my, my medicine, it's in the desk drawer. Oh, quickly, please. Nothing more terrifying than a home invasion movie, is there? This is home invasion done old Hollywood style. If you've ever seen movies like The Servant, or even The Devil and Daniel Webster to an extent, then you'll know that awful sense of creeping horror as the homestead becomes a battleground. Now, the plot actually takes a while to get going in terms of running time. The house isn't taken over until about halfway through, but that gives the story a chance to introduce its players really well. Basil has played some villains in his time, but they 
pale in comparison to Henry Abbott. One of the most odious, repellent, wily bad guys of all time. He's also devastatingly attractive, and you can see why anyone would fall for his charms. Against him is the wonderful Aline McMahon, who you'll most likely know as conwoman Barrelhouse Betty in One Way Passage. I do think perhaps she's a little bit young to play the elderly spinster type, but she's never less than wonderful to watch. Now, I can't say this is a film you'll enjoy as such. It's basically the tale of the worst people you'll ever meet, slowly dismantling the life and the happiness of someone quite wonderful. But as a production, it's handsomely staged, impeccably cast, and doesn't overstay its welcome. It's less than 90 minutes long, and by the time the final curtain falls, you may find yourself perched rigidly on the edge of that seat of yours and desperate to spend some time in the bright sunshine. Dark stuff indeed, but if you like your melodramas sharp and sinister, then you'll like 1935's Kind Lady very much. Every now and then you see a movie from the Golden Age, and the humour is so on point, so clever, so timeless that it doesn't feel like an old film. It's incredibly funny to watch no matter what time period you were born in. Some jokes are just eternal. That's not the case in 1930s remote control. Oh, my God, what a stinker. Is that all? I'd also like a lesson in love. Would you like to have it in uh, A-flat or right here? You're quite fresh, aren't you? No, just well-preserved. The story here is of a man named William Brennan, played by William Haynes, who dreams of being a radio star. If only he had some kind of contact in the radio world who would give him his big break. Maybe some radio boss whose radio station was on the skids and who was feeling pretty desperate. But I'm afraid we've only got another month to go. What do you mean? Well, things haven't been going so good lately. Rotten programs and very bad announcers. Sammy, your worries are over. Your goose has laid a golden egg. <laughs> An egg, maybe, but I'm not so sure it's golden. Sammy, you're looking at William Judd Brennan, the best radio announcer that ever pushed a verb through a microphone. You? None other but such. Israeli, Abraham Lincoln, Graham McNamee all roll right into one. So William comes up with an amazing idea to save the station. He'll be the announcer and he'll find the most incredible acts to star in radio shows there. All kinds of radio talent wanted. You may be a Amos or Andy or a Lawrence Tibbet. Apply to William Judd Brennan, station WPN at 9 a.m. What follows is the longest, most excruciating series of auditions ever committed to film. Not a single act is talented. What a joy this is to watch for 65 minutes of your lifetime. I came and I to your ad. What do you do, my good man? I'm the world's champion hog caller from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I'm recommended by Mrs. Myrtle Walkenthilu Fowl Palmer Durdifuff. Uh, just what is a hog caller? Well, you see, a hog caller like myself, we call the hogs, and the hogs is out in the pasture awaiting to be called so they can come home and get their victuals. Oh, I see you call them by name. No. I don't call them by name. They're just out there awaiting for my familiar tone. Oh, what is your familiar tone? Well, whenever you get ready to call a hog, you just go... <laughs> oh, that's the way you call them? Yeah, that's the way you call the biggest. Yeah. But the little piggies, the cute little piggies, they're out in the... It goes on. So this is from MGM, and you'd expect there to be far more entertainment value in it, but nope. 
This is like a collection of outtakes. Worse than that, it's like a collection of outtake outtakes. This is the silt at the bottom of a very muddy river. Did I mention that William Brennan is the worst of the lot? This is him on his own, by the way, in case you get confused by the brilliance of his acting. The ensuing hour brings you the standard building loan program. The first number will be one of Uncle Elmer's bedtime stories. Uncle Elmer's walking into the studio now. Hello, Uncle Elmer. Hello. Right this way, Uncle Elmer. Good evening, children. This is Uncle Elmer speaking. For tonight, I'll tell you the story of the sleeping baby and the hungry wolf. Watching this film makes you realize how short life is and how precious your minutes are. Who do I sue to get this time back? Marion, do you know why the waffles have so many little squares in them? I do not. Well, if they were holes, they'd be donuts. <laughs> aren't we having the jolliest time? <laughs> yes, we aren't. <laughs> you can say that again. So it's always nice to find a movie that's somehow worse than The Gorilla, because even when you think wit and invention can't possibly slide into a filthier cesspit of despair. Along comes 1930s remote control to prove that there's always lower to go. Honestly, this is now the worst movie I've ever seen. Shame is it does have some things to recommend it. It stars William Haynes, who did a lot for gay rights. Love him. Edward Brophy's in this too. Love him. It's MGM, so it already has a head start in terms of production values. It's just a shame that the script seems to have been written by an extraterrestrial with no concept of humour and an even slighter grasp on the English language. Diabolical movie. One of the most annoying things I've ever sat through. If you thought Zenobia was bad, if you swooned at the crapulence of the gorilla, if the ape man made your toes curl, then, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new champ of the chumps. I give you 1930s remote control. Well, nothing stirs my spirits up like a good old-fashioned swashbuckler of an adventure. Throw in a little intrigue, some revenge, some romance, and some of the finest radio production values around, and you end up with Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson in the Lux Radio Theatre's wonderful adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo. Yes, we're on a rampage of revenge with Edmond Dantes for a whole hour of classic thrills. So I'll leave you in Lux's very capable hands, and I'll see you afterwards. Lux presents Hollywood. Our stars, Robert Montgomery, Josephine Hutchinson, Lewis Stone, Lloyd Nolan, Sidney Blackmer, and Paul Lucas. Our special guest, Mr. Alton Cook, radio editor of the New York World Telegram. The Lux Radio Theater Orchestra is conducted by Lewis Silvers. This program comes to you with the good wishes of the makers of Lux Flakes, those mild, pure flakes that leave your hands so soft and lovely. Try Lux for your dishes, and you'll see what I mean. It protects your hands in the dishpan and helps them stay smooth and white, lovely to look at. And it's so inexpensive doing dishes this way. A little goes so far. Lux is thrifty. Now, the producer of the Lux Radio Theater, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. As fantastic and unpredictable as the Count of Monte Cristo himself was the genius who created him, Alexander Dumas. A writer of amazing energy and monumental achievements, he often displayed a childish vanity, 
and delighted to be known as a man of the world, a Beau Brummel. To protect his pride, he once fought a duel, attacking his opponent furiously, while with his free hand he struggled to hold up his trousers, which persisted in slipping down. For a pet, he selected a vulture, parading him on the streets like a peacock, until the, the vicious bird turned on him and took a piece out of his leg. Dumas made fortune after fortune, threw each one blissfully away, and died penniless. His novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, appeared only a few months after The Three Musketeers. It was like writing an Anthony adverse and following it up with Gone with the Wind. In play form, Monte Cristo ran here and abroad for 39 years. Twice a motion picture, The Count of Monte Cristo comes to you with a star-spangled cast, headed by Robert Montgomery. His ability to assume a wide range of character types makes him one of the screen's most applauded actors and especially equipped for the title role tonight. From Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studio, his latest picture is Fast and Loose. As Mercedes, we welcome back a superb artist in Josephine Hutch Hutchinson. Louis Stone, beloved veteran of countless films, is Abbe Faria. And our trio of conspirators is composed of those three experts, Lloyd Nolan as Danglar, Sidney Blackmer as Mondego, and Paul Lucas in the role of De Villefort. And now for the play. The Lux Radio Theater presents Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson in The Count of Monte Cristo with Lloyd Nolan, Sidney Blackmer, and Paul Lucas. The year is 1815. Napoleon, overwhelmingly defeated at Leipzig, has been exiled to the island of Elba. But still the figure of the little Corsican looms like a giant specter over all Europe. And Louis XVIII, perching perilously on the throne of France, trembles at each new report of plots to restore the emperor. Through all the countryside has gone the king's command, death or imprisonment to all who support the cause of Bonaparte. But still the plots go on. Just before sundown, on a day early in the year, Napoleon, in his quarters at Elba, is finishing an audience with a tall young man, uniformed as an officer of the French Merchant Marine. And you will deliver this letter to Monsieur Nottier in Marseille. He will make himself known to you by the one word, Elba. I understand, Your Majesty. But how will this man know me? He will be seeking the captain of the French ship, Farron. But I'm not captain, sire. Not officially. Captain Leclerc died at sea two days ago. As first mate, naturally, I assumed command. Oh, no matter, no matter. Nottier will find whoever was acting captain when the Farron stopped at Elba. Uh, one more thing, Monsieur. Uh, Dante's, you said the name was? Edmund Dantes, sir. Why are you here? It was Captain Leclerc's last order, sire. He commanded me to stop at Elba and in his name perform whatever service your majesty might require. Hmm. Then it's your dead captain that you serve in this case and not Napoleon. Is that it, Dantes? Your majesty, I'm a sailor. My study has been the sea, not politics. <laughs> the diplomacy of a Talleyrand. Well, your loyalty is not important. Your honesty is. I want that letter delivered. It will be, Your Majesty. You may depend on it. Reach the top gallant belt. Helmsman, what about to ride before the gale? Aye, aye, sir. Will we ever see Marseille again, Monsieur Dantes? Oh, don't be a fool, man. The Pharaoh loves the storm. I'll be in my cabin if you need me. Aye, aye. Dantes, I, I... 
I've been waiting to see you. Yes? Well, you'll usually find me on the bridge during a gale. I... I thought it might be better to see you here. I don't like our riding before the wind like this, Dantes. It's too dangerous. Now, if Leclerc had named me captain when he died... But he didn't. I... I'm in command, and I'll give the orders I think best. Good night, Dunkler. Good night. Oh, uh... By the way, here's a letter I found just now on the floor. Oh. Thank you. Are you sure you found it, Monsieur Dunkler? I'm quite sure. But if you're turning the Pharon into a mail ship, Captain Dantes... You should at least be careful with the cargo from Elba. Pernod, what news? Is there any word from the Pharaoh? None, Mercedes. I saw Monsieur Morel, the owner. He's given up hope. It's useless, Mercedes, believe me. But it me. can't be. Ships have been late before. As late as this? Why deceive yourself? The pharaoh was heavily laden. Not in a dozen years has there been such a storm. She was... Oh, please, Fernand. Don't you suppose I haven't thought of all that? Every day, every night. Mercedes, I know it's not the time to speak, but through all these months, whenever I have spoken of my love for you, you've refused to listen. It was Edmund Dantes who stood between us. But now, Mercedes, if he... If the pharaoh doesn't come back, tell me at least that I may hope. I don't know, Fernand. I can't think of that now. Mercedes, give me your word. Promise me that if Dantes does not come back, you'll be my wife. Perhaps, Fernand. Perhaps in time I... Listen. A ship in the harbor. It's the Pharaoh and Edmund. It must be. It must be. Well, welcome, Edmond. Welcome. My thanks to you for bringing the Pharaoh safely home. Thank you, Monsieur Morel. I only wish Captain Leclerc... He died at sea, Edmond. A sailor can't ask more. No, sir. And you, Danglars, welcome. Is uh, the cargo in good condition? Yes, Monsieur Morel, as well as might be expected after a trip like that. Well, you're here, and the cargo's safe. That's all that matters. Perhaps. But we'd have missed that storm altogether if we hadn't stopped at Elba. You stopped at Elba? At whose command? At Dante's. At Captain Leclerc's. The order was his, sir. Then you were right to stop. Edmund! Mercedes! Edmund, Edmund, my darling. It's you, alive and well and strong. You doubt it. Edmund, stop! <laughs> Let me down. Edmund! Oh, forgive him, Monsieur Morel. The man's a little mad. <laughs> well, he's not the only one. Dante. Every day for the last six months, this girl has pestered me for news when you'd be home. Monsieur Morel. <laughs> well, he's here now. His time is yours. Go ahead, Captain Dante. Captain? Captain. From now on, you remain in command of the Pharaoh. Monsieur oh. Morel. <laughs> now, don't talk to me. Talk to him. <laughs> This orchard, Edmund. Remember? Remember? I think I came here every day while you were gone. I used to lie under the trees and look up at the sky, wondering where you were and what you were thinking of at the moment. And then later the leaves dried and began to fall. I was sad at that. And, and happy, too. Because I knew somehow that before the leaves came back, we'd be here together. You and I. Oh, Mercedes, if you knew the things that were on my lips to say. But now that I'm with you, I can't find words. I know. 
The nights I've lain aloft in the rigging and discussed your beauty with the stars. Or times of storm when I've stood in the prow and shouted your name into the gale, daring it to carry my voice to you. It was a kind of torture to be away from you. I felt that, too. And are you afraid of it, Mercedes? Afraid? There will be other voyages of the Pharaoh and other storms and times we don't arrive when we're expected. Perhaps even... Well, I hadn't meant to say it this way, but... Oh, Edmund, of course I'll be afraid. Every time you sail, my heart will turn to stone till you sail back again. But that doesn't matter, because I'll never doubt. Because I'll always know that you will come back. Mercedes... To Monsieur Fernand Mondego. You are invited to be present tomorrow night at the betrothal feast of Edmond Dantes and Mercedes Rosas to be held at the Café La Reserve with Monsieur Morel as patron. That's enough, Dangla. <laughs> well, very well, but if you won't read your own invitation, somebody ought to read it for you. You know, you amuse me, Mondego. Now, it's bad enough to be a rejected suitor. It's even worse to look like one. Another drink? No. I was just wondering... Who's the king's representative in Marseille now? A man named De Villefort. Why? You know him? I've met him. Ambitious? I suppose so. And loyal to the king? <laughs> of course. Then I wonder what Monsieur De Villefort would do if two good citizens, say you and I, for example, were to come to him with information concerning a certain young captain recently arrived in Marseille who stopped en route at Elba. Elba? What are you talking about? You mean Dante's? Well, <laughs> that's better, Mondego. Much better. Why, you look positively alive again. <laughs> is it the wine, Mercedes, or is it you? I've never danced better in my life. I'm hoping that you'll improve when you get rid of your sea legs. Oh, you hear that? Treachery. <laughs> and from my own betrothed. Uh, Captain Dante's. Yes? A gentleman wishes to speak with you outside. Well, invite him in. He said it was private. He asked for the captain of the Pharaoh. Oh. Excuse me, Mercedes. I'll be right back. Good evening, my friend. Good evening. You, uh, are the captain of the Pharaoh? I am. Well, what is it? Elba. Oh. Yes, I... I've been expecting you. I have the letter with me. Here. Thank you. Good night, monsieur. Good night. Ah, you uh, back so soon, Edmond? Monsieur Morel, you remember the letter I mentioned to you from Elba? Oh, delivered? Delivered. I'm glad. You were right to obey Leclerc's orders. But it's good that the letter is out of your hands. Is Edmond Dantes here? Captain Edmond Dantes. I am Edmond Dantes. In the name of the king's magistrate, you are under arrest. Edmond. It's all right, Mercedes. What is the charge, officer? Suspicion of bearing treasonable information from the usurper Bonaparte. That charge is absurd. Monsieur de Villefort will decide that. Edmond, I'm afraid. Nonsense. Here, treasure that kiss. In half an hour, there'll be another to match it. I'm ready, officer. Edmond! You arrested both of them? Yes, Monsieur de Villefort. We have the old man who received the note and the young officer who gave it to him. Mm, good. I'll see the old one first. Yes, Monsieur. The prisoner, Monsieur. 
Good evening, Monsieur de Villefort. You? Monsieur de Villefort, is something wrong? No. Get out. I will examine the prisoner alone. Yes, monsieur. Meddling again. I thought you were in Paris. No. I'm in Marseille. Held prisoner by my own son. Amusing, isn't it? Do you realize that if the king learned that my father is an active agent for Bonaparte... That, that... Uh, you'd be in danger? That you'd lose your office and uh, possibly even more? Of course I realize it, my son. And that is why the king will not learn. If you can prevent it. I'll see that you are escorted safely back to Paris. But you must be careful, do you understand? And above all, don't use the name de Villefort. Mm, a fair enough bargain for your protection... Thank you, my son. You rang, monsieur? Just call the prisoner to Sergeant Craner. I'll give him full instructions later. Very good, monsieur. And send in the other prisoner. Good night, my most noble magistrate. Send in the other prisoner. Edmond Dantes, captain of the Farm? Yes. Dantes, you are accused of carrying a message from Elba, plotting treason against your king. What have you to say? Only that in carrying that message, monsieur... I was carrying out the orders of my superior, Captain Leclerc. I knew nothing about the contents of the letter. Really? And uh, the man to whom you delivered the letter, what was his name? I don't know. Could you uh, describe him? Perfectly. He was about your height. Uh, never mind. And... Uh, you say your captain ordered you to stop at Elva. Where is that captain? Dead. How convenient. But any member of the crew could vouch for what I say. They could? Monsieur Danglars, perhaps? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm sure that Danglars knew that I... Come in, Danglars. Danglars. Fondego. Danglars, Monsieur Dantes has just told me that in stopping at Elba, he was obeying the orders of Captain Leclerc. Do you confirm that statement? I do not. The order to stop at Elba was given by Dantes himself. Leclerc's last command had been to make directly for Marseille. Danglars, you're mistaken. I have no reason to lie. Nor have I. Monsieur Mondego. Have you any reason to believe that Dantes is unjustly accused? Well, Mondego, tell him. The accusation is just. Dantes has long been a Bonapartist. His fiancée, Mercedes de Rosas, confessed it to me. That's a lie. He's lying. They're both lying. Oh, I see it now. They informed on me from the first. Listen to me, Monsieur de Villefort, and understand. Danglars lied because he wants to be captain in my place. Boy, Mondego because of Mercedes de Rosas. You can't take their word. They. I've heard enough. Guard. Monsieur? You will escort this prisoner to the Chateau d'If. The Chateau d'If? But that's for condemned prisoners. I have a right to You've trial. You've had your trial. Come along. Wait. Monsieur de Villefort, why you do this, I do not know. But someday I shall. Mondego. Danglars. Your reasons I understand. And I'll remember. Take him away. And you'll see me again, I warn you. Though I may rot in the Chateau d'If, you have my word I'll find a way to meet you. All of you. <laughs> Curtain falls on the first act of The Count of Monte Cristo with Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson. And in a few moments, we'll go on with act two. But first, during our brief intermission, we bring you another scene from the lives of that lovable family, the Brownings. It's late afternoon, and Mother is reading in the living room. The front door bursts open, and in comes 16-year-old Dot, home from a shopping trip. Mother? Oh, Mother, where are you? 
in here, Doc, in the living room. Oh, Mother, I've just bought Mitch's birthday present. It's simply darling. Oh, do let me see it, dear. Look, it's a blue organdy sweater. Isn't it the coziest thing you ever saw? Oh, Doc, why, he's just adorable. But, dear, that isn't organdy. It's Angora. And I do hope Midge will take care of it. Oh, Mother, I'll, I'll die if she ever dares to rub it with cake soap. Oh, if she'll only remember to use Lux. Well, now, let's see. Perhaps we could give her a little reminder. Oh, yes. Maybe we could put it in a little jingle, the way we did with Mary Lou's present. Why, that's the very thing. Mm, something like this. Oh, Midgey Lux this fluffy bit so it will keep its cozy fit. <laughs> oh, Mother, that's darling. Oh, Midgey Lux this fluffy bit. So it will keep its cozy fit. <laughs> we'll say it every time she wears the sweater. <laughs> and then she can't forget. <laughs> it's careless washing that makes sweaters shrink. Wool fibers are tender. They can't stand rubbing or the harmful alkali in strong soaps. Lux flakes have no harmful alkali to hurt the sensitive wool fibers or fade colors. They keep your nice woolens, your sweaters, scarves, and socks, new-looking longer. This same thing is true of your silks and rayons. Lux is so mild and pure... It won't harm fibers or colors that are safe in water alone. And now, Mr. DeMille. Act Two of The Count of Monte Cristo, starring Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson, with Louis Stone, Lloyd Nolan, Sidney Blackma, and Paul Lucas. Eight years have passed. Eight years of living death for Edmund Dantes, lying forgotten in a dungeon of the Chateau d'If. Time has made great changes in the man. Fury and hope are gone, and there remains but bitterness, and an abyss of despair as all enfolding of the black silence in which he lives. There's one further step to madness, and on the brink of that stands the shadow of the man called Dante's. The dungeon rats are his only companions. He speaks to them, anxious for the sound of his own voice. Listen. Listen, my friends. <laughs> you hear? The guard is coming. Our dinner. A veritable banquet, my friends. <laughs> Just put it on the floor, my good man. I'm not hungry, but my friends, the rats, will eat with me. Won't you, Mondego? And Dangla? <laughs> Look at the view for. He's getting fat. God. God. What year is it? Tell me. In God's name, tell me. Speak to me. One word. Just one word. God. God, listen. You hear that? That water. Drip. 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 There, where it falls under the stone. It goes forever like that. It will drive me mad. God, you're human yourself. Can you imagine what it means? The darkness in that water beating, beating against your brain. Stop it. Stop it. You'll take things as they are, 27. Don't call me that. My name is Dante's. Edmund Dante's. Ah, you're mad. Edmund Dante's is dead. It's on the records. Dead? Dead? Killed while trying to escape. Killed? Then who am I? Number 27. That's who you are. Another animal to feed. God. God, come back. That's not true. Whatever that record says, I am Dante's. Forget the water, forget everything, but tell them I'm alive. The Villefort lied. I am Dante's. 
at you. God! God! Who is that? Where are you? Behind this wall? Beneath the floor? Here? Are you a prisoner? Answer me. There's someone there. Alive, there's someone there. I'll help. I'll help you dig. Through. It's open. Come out. My hand. Take my hand. I... Well, why don't you speak? You can speak, can't you? Yes. Yes, I can speak. Another cell... Six years I burrow through a wall of rock, hoping to reach safety, and my tunnel ends in a cell. I'm sorry, comrade, for your sake, but glad for my own. To see another human being, to feel the warmth of his hand, I to know, talk. I know, I know, but I shall find freedom. For now I'll have your youth to help me. Who are you, my son? I am Edmund Dantes. And I am the Abbey Farrier. The mad priest, they call me here. Mad? You? Oh, it is convenient. Even a prison guard must feel pity for a mad old man. How long have you been here? I don't know. They brought me here in February, 1815. Eight years? This is the 7th of June, 1823. Eight years? Then I'm still young. You know the date. How? When you see my cell, you'll understand. We'll go there now. Now, wait, wait, wait. And if the guard should pass, your bed there empty. But yours now. Oh, you... I'm, I'm sleeping on it. Or so it appears. A dummy, my son, made of blankets and straw. And there must be one here for you. I'll show you. Meanwhile, tell me why you're here. Are you innocent? Remember, I am a man of God. I am innocent, Father. Believe me. Tell me. I... I was first mate of the ship Ferron. My captain, Captain Leclerc, was dying. He called me... Since then, save for the guard, I've seen no living soul except yourself. And that is all. But for one thing, I learned from the guard that to the world outside, Edmund Dantes is dead. Uh, naturally, my son. Naturally? You think this man, De Villefort, would have risked investigation. It was so simple for him to certify he was dead. But it is better so. That certificate may serve you well when you're free. Free? 
Abbe Faria, there is hope of escape. I'm sure of it. One of two routes from my cell is certain to lead to the outer wall. This one was wrong. The other cannot be. Freedom. To know at last my revenge. To stand before De Villefort, Dangla, Mondego. Stop, 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 Dante. Stop. You fool. You miserable animal. Groveling here in darkness, nursing your revenge. If you could see yourself chained, not just in body, but in mind and soul. What do you mean? Come, come to my cell. I'll show you. It's unbelievable, Father. A candle, matches, the digging tools, the drawings on the walls. And all of it, Dante's, because my mind is not in chains. The candles, made from beef fat in my food. The matches, broom twigs dipped in sulfur that I wheedle from the guard. <laughs> a skin ailment. The mad priest, remember. They can humor me. So with the bits of chalk and carbon for these drawings on the wall. But what are they? You don't know, but you shall. Formula. The basis of all the sciences. There, quotations from the great literature of the world... Inscribed in different forms upon these walls, you'll find the sum total of man's knowledge. It's not possible, Father. Not in this darkness alone. Uh, you've seen but a part of what I've done and what I can do. What we can do. We? Yes, our tools are crude. Our task long, but that is fortunate, my son. For it will take long to make you worthy of your freedom. All that I know I shall teach you... And when your freedom comes, you shall go forth into the world with the mind, the body, and the soul of a superman. You will serve Edmond Dantes, not as another horseman of the apocalypse, but as an avenging angel doing the work of God. And, and if your lunar observations are correct... Two months from tonight will be the highest tide of the year. The water will seep through the crevice and unloosen the rocks. Our tunnel will be through. Ah. Eleven years of digging. It has not been in vain, my son. But me was not grow too anxious. And we must continue with our studies. You will be glad on your day of freedom. On our day, Father. No, Edmund. Not on mine. Father. Haven't you wondered that for four days now you have worked without my help? But what of it? A temporary stiffness in your arm? And... Not temporary. My arm is paralyzed. Paralyzed? A stroke. It happened four nights ago. I told you nothing, hoping the effects would pass, but they won't. You must escape alone, my son. And leave you? I'll carry you. On my shoulder. Uh, how far could you swim with such a weight? You see, you must go by yourself. I won't. I swear by the mind, by the soul that you have given me, I'll never leave you here alone. My son, you're worthy of all my trust. Come, come, Dante's back to my cell. There's something I must tell you. Now, millions, Edmund. 
Unnumbered millions. The whole of the Sparda fortune. Mine. The Sparda fortune? I've heard of that. But it's been lost for centuries. Ah, yes, except to me. I know where it's to be found. I was the secretary to the last of the Sparda family. At his death, I became his heir. And after his death, among the manuscripts of the Sparda library, I found a scroll. The key to the lost treasure. And where is it? On the island of Monte Cristo. Monte Cristo? I know it well. There's nothing there, nothing but rocks. There is a fortune there, Edmond. A fortune which but to find is to own the world. And you shall find it. I? There will be another attack, my son. And soon an attack that I shall not survive. Then you must go alone. And for your loyalty and out of my love for you, you are to be my heir. Father, how can I thank you? Edmond, listen. The key to the treasure, you must learn it well. I have destroyed the scroll, but engraved its contents on my brain. So it must be on yours. Now listen, and listen carefully, so that you will not forget. A jutting rock at the island's eastern point. Walk twenty paces north, then west. A rock appearing solid that will move. A hollow wall in the far corner to be broken through. A dark chamber in the grotto. A chest upon the floor. And the world is yours. Now listen again and again a hundred times. The time shall come and you must not forget. The jutting rock at the island's eastern point. The jutting rock at the island's eastern point. Last night, the stroke I knew would come. And now, my son, listen. Your way of escape. I see it now. It doesn't matter now, Father. I... Hear me, Edmond. The cemetery of the Chateau d'If is the sea, Edmond. And so, when I die, you must scream as though it were myself. They'll come and find me dead and shroud me in a sack. Then... At sundown, they will return to throw my body from the prison wall. But you, you must take my place inside that sack. Do you hear? You in the sack. It will be you that they throw from the wall into the sea. Freedom, Edmond. Father, I won't. Do as I say, my son. Take my place inside the sack. And remember, I've given you all knowledge, fortune... You must be an angel of justice. Oh, Edmund, this means freedom for us both. It is so beautiful. Father. Father. My only friend. One sure way of leaving the Chateau Deep. Did you tie him in the sack yet? This morning. Oh, 
Here's the cell. Ah, you take his head, and I'll take his feet. Uh, he's heavy for an old man, isn't he? Didn't seem this heavy this morning. Oh, well, perhaps he'll sink all the quicker. <laughs> Move along now to the top of the seawall. God have mercy on his soul. Now, one, two, three. He calls for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Just heard Act Two of The Count of Monte Cristo with Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson. Before Mr. DeMille introduces our invited guest, let me remind you that more than a thousand department stores throughout the country advise their customers to use Lux Flakes. Give your dresses, blouses, sweaters, underthings, and stockings regular Lux care, and you'll be amazed how long they keep that fresh from the bandbox look that makes them so smart. Just remember this Lux is safe for anything that's safe in water alone. And here's another hint a little goes so far. Lux is thrifty, especially when you buy the large-size box. And now, Mr. DeMille. For the enjoyment radio brings us, we're indebted not only to the sponsors who provide us with our talent, but to the hundreds of radio editors whose criticism and suggestions have aided immeasurably in advancing this medium of entertainment. Among them, tonight's guest, Mr. Alton Cook, is a dominant figure. Conducting a daily column in the New York World Telegram, Mr. Cook each year tabulates a continent-wide poll to determine the outstanding programs of the past 12 months. He reports tonight on this poll of radio editors in the United States and Canada. Speaking from New York City, Mr. Alton Cook. A little less than five years ago, a cast of good actors with Miriam Hopkins and John Bowles as their stars gathered in a radio studio and sent a play called Seventh Heaven through loudspeakers all over this continent. From this window at my elbow in New York, I can't lean out to ask, do you remember that day, Mr. DeMille? I'm sure you remember it as well as I do. That was the start of your radio theater. Before that year was out, the New York World Telegram gathered the votes of radio editors in the United States and Canada. The weekly programs of your new radio theater were voted the best dramas of 1934. The casts of that first year began like a who's who of Broadway and Hollywood. The plays, a survey of the most heartwarming and mirth-stirring writing of our time, gathered from stage and screen. The pace you have set has been a hard one to keep, I'm sure. But each year, we radio editors have assured you that your pace has not slackened. The 1939 World Telegram poll of radio editors has just ended. The verdict is the same. Your radio theater has been far ahead through all the five years since that day it began. 
Along with all the other radio editors of the United States and Canada, our congratulations to you and to your sponsor. Along with the honor of this award, Mr. Cook, we recognize our responsibilities for the future. Now here in Hollywood, we're ready to bring you Act Three of The Count of Monte Cristo with Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson and our all-star cast. Months have passed since Edmund Dantes was thrown from the walls of the Chateau d'If. Picked up by a passing sloop, he at last found his way to the island of Monte Cristo, to the dark chamber in the grotto. And there, as the abbey had told him, lay the glittering Spada fortune. Gold, diamonds, pearls, rubies, unnumbered millions. The world is mine. Now... Years later, all Europe whispers strange tales of a strange man, a fabulously wealthy nobleman, the Count of Monte Cristo. To his palatial villa in Rome, the Count of Monte Cristo has summoned Jacopo, his private agent. Your name is a kind of magic in these days, Excellency. Everywhere they speak of you. Who is he? Where did he come from? Why, if you would care to hear... I wouldn't. Forgive me, Your Excellency. Jacopo, I selected you for this task not alone because you are the best agent in all Europe, but also because you're supposed to know when not to talk. Yes, Your Excellency. Now, I have returned to Rome to learn what progress you have made. Your investigations are complete. Complete, Your Excellency. Three books. Hundreds of entries in each. This is the record of the man de Villefort. This of Dongla and this Mondego. Every movement each has made since February 1815. Mm. You've done well, Jacopo. It was not always easy. These three are, shall I say, clever men. De Villefort now holds the position of king's attorney. Much evidence of dishonesty in office. De Villefort, king's attorney. The others? Dongla, now known as the Baron Dongla, is one of the four leading bankers of France. Conspiracy with De Villefort to defeat public interest. With De Villefort? Then the two are friends. All three are friends. De Villefort, Dongla, Mondego. Ever since Marseille, they've worked together. And before. Go on, what of Mondego? Fernand de Mondego, now Count de Mondego. In 1815, soldier in Provincial Army of France. Two years later, in 1817, married... Married. Married to Mercedes de Rosas of Marseille. You've read this, Excellency. No, my friend. But I've done some investigating of my own. Go on. Through questionable activity, Mondego rose quickly in the army. Served as aide to Ali Pasha of Albania against the Turks. Has one child, a son, 19, Albert de Mondego. Lieutenant... Wait. Lin a son? Yes, Excellency, and here in Rome. Fortunate. We must find a way to be of service to this son of Mondego's. Arrange it, Jacopo. At once, Your Excellency. Perhaps if he is grateful enough, he may invite us to Paris. To his home. Perhaps. Yes. Yes, the time has come for the Count of Monte Cristo to open the gates of Paris, and Albert de Mondego shall be the key. Oh, one thing more, Jacopo. You recall I also asked you to trace a certain young French sailor. His name was Edmond Dantes. Have you done so? I have. The report is also there. And here is the record of his death in the Chateau d'If, signed by de Villefort. Give it to me. The time will come when I shall need absolute proof as to the death or life of Edmond Dantes.
Good evening, Baron. Good evening. Is the Count Mondego at home? Why, yes, monsieur. He's right here. Oh, Dongla, come in, come in. Well, Fernand, why this sudden call here? You know that De Villefort expects us within an hour. De Villefort is stopping here later. Anyway, there may be more important things to be considered, my dear Dongla. What do you mean? We have uh, helped each other on business matters before, haven't we? And we always manage to agree on terms? Yes, yes. Get to the point. Suppose through me your banking house gained a client, Danglar, the richest client in all Europe, the Count of Monte Cristo. What? He's here now, in there with my son Albert, just arrived in Paris and anxious to be introduced. Well, do we understand each other, Danglar? Perfectly. Oh, here he is. Father, may I present the Count of Monte Cristo? Charmed, monsieur. Albert has told me of your kindness to him, how you saved him from the hands of bandits. Any kindness I have shown your son, monsieur, is more than repaid by this introduction to his father. And now, Count, may I present the Baron Danglars? A great honor. Your Excellency, the honor is mine. You, uh, you're in Paris on business, I presume. Yes, but my business is a pleasure. Will you be here long? Only until my business is completed. By the way, Baron... I should like to have your house handle my banking while I'm in Paris. Oh, why, uh, yeah. <laughs> delighted, my dear Count. Excellent. And I wonder if you would contact my British brokers for me. Tell them I said to buy 50,000 shares of Anglo-Spanish. 50? Uh, <coughs> very good, very good. Monsieur de Villefort, the king's attorney. Ah, Monsieur de Villefort, in good time. I'd like to have you meet the man who saved my life in Rome, the Count of Monte Cristo. I am honored. A pleasure, sir. I have followed your brilliant career at the bar with a great deal of interest. One does what one can, my dear Count. Exactly. But don't let me detain you, gentlemen. The great nation of France awaits your services. Uh, we shall meet soon again, I trust. Indeed, I shall plan for it, Count Montego. Oh, uh, Monte Cristo, you did say 50,000 Anglo-Spanish, didn't you? 50,000. Good day, gentlemen. And now the most important introduction of all, my mother... Well, she's in the garden. Somehow I didn't want her to meet you with the others. I see. Well, here she is and waiting for us. Mother, I bring him to you at last. The Count of Monte Cristo. My dear Count, how can I ever... ever thank you for saving my son's life? It was nothing. I am more than repaid by the honor of meeting you, Madame de Mondego. Two things are rare among the women of our day. Great beauty and fidelity. Here I find both. You here, Mother? I told you you'd never meet anyone like him. And now, if you'll excuse me. Oh, I almost forgot. I am planning on a ball to open my new estates near Fontainebleau. And I should like my guest of honor to be the father of my first Parisian friend. Your father, Albert. Do you think he'd mind? Mind? He'd be delighted. I thought it would be particularly apropos to combine it with an Albanian pageant and a series of tableaux showing the court of Ali Pasha, where your father gained such fame... And honor. But that would be wonderful. And you, madame? The plan has your approval? I could only say that in paying any honor to my husband, your excellency is more than generous. Be assured, madame. The honor I shall pay him is less than he deserves. <laughs> your excellency... Yes. Uh, the Princess Heyday of Albania, monsieur, in the library. She wishes to see you at once. Very well. Excuse me, Albert. Princess. I am here, my lord. You are prepared? I am. You are sure you understand? 
The third tableau, the one which shows Mondego supposedly defending your father from the Turks. It is then I speak. Then? You are not afraid? No, my lord. I shall be telling the truth. My father was murdered by the County Mondego. My mother and I were sold into slavery at his command. I shall tell them, everyone, that the County Mondego is not the hero they think him to be. That he betrayed my country and betrayed France. Exactly. Now come with me. But why a visit at this hour, Mondego? I regret the affair, of course. The girl was obviously demented. But I apologize to my guests and... And what of this? The morning paper, Albanian princess exposes the Count de Mondego. Astounding. The evidence. You gave it to them. You knew. And if I did, Mondego, what then? I'll kill you. Put down that gun. You won't shoot me, for you're afraid. Not even knowing who I am, you fear me. But when you know... Stop. Stay away from me. Put down that gun. Who are you? Go back, Pondego. Go back to when you thought life was cheap. Go back to when you could kill a man with lies. Go back, Pondego, to Marseille, the Chateau d'If. Dantes! Edmund Dantes! Dantes. You may go now, my friend, and take your gun with you. Perhaps you do have courage of a sort. Goodbye, Count Mondego. Excellency, you're all right? Yes, Jacopo. And your book of evidence on the Count de Mondego, you can destroy it. The last chapter has been written. And now, Danglars. understand? Both of us. Just a moment, Danglar. Calm yourself. Why are we ruined? Anglo-Spanish. You sent the order to London. I acted on it here. Converted everything I own into Anglo-Spanish. And it's failed. Collapse. We're ruined. Why? I knew it would collapse. You knew. But you've been buying. Your message to Thompson in French in London. The message was in code. Though it said to buy, it really meant to sell. You see, Thompson and French is owned by a man named Edmond Dantes. By who? Monte Cristo. But, but you said... Edmond Dantes. Monte Cristo. They are the same, Danga. No. No. The same. Look at me. Look at my eyes. Look, Danga. Dantes. No. No. No! Well, Doctor. The Baron Danglars is insane. The mind snapped completely, often in cases of sudden mental shock like this. I understand. Jacopo. Excellency. The second volume. Closed. Very good, Your Excellency. Your Excellency. Yes. The Countess de Mondego. Here? In the drawing room. Have the Baron taken to it. Madame. Your Excellency. I regret that you've come at such an unfortunate time. The Baron Danglars has just been taken ill. Fernand, and now Danglars. Your Excellency, I've come here about my son. Albert? He feels that you're responsible for his father's death. Tomorrow he's sending his seconds to you. 
A duel. But you can't kill him. You can't kill my boy. Madame, this duel was not of my planning. But you made it inevitable. What other course is left for him? Please, please, I beg of you. Haven't you had your vengeance, Edmond? You know. The first when? day Albert brought you to me. Edmond, I can't blame you for your bitterness. But try to understand. I did wait. And then one day we went to the Chateau d'If. And they showed me there the record you had died. And then? Then nothing mattered. I married Fernand. Our life was a nightmare, Edmond. Except for Albert. He's all I have. He's all I've ever had. Save you. The you that was a thousand years ago. Please save him for me, Edmond. I shall. You need have no fear. There will be no duel. Edmund Dantes, alias the Count of Monte Cristo? Yes. You are under arrest by order of the King's attorney, Monsieur de Villefort. De Villefort? Volume 3. And so, gentlemen of the jury, citizens of France, one last word before you assemble to take a ballot. Look at this man. This creature pretending to be an honest sailor who was all the time in reality a spy, who while imprisoned in the Chateau d'If undermined the structure with tunnels, and when he discovered that the old priest who was his companion held the secret to a treasure, undoubtedly murdered that priest to get the treasure for himself. Know him for what he is, gentlemen, this Edmond Dantes, a traitor, a spy, and without doubt a murderer. Gentlemen, as honest Frenchmen, I know that you will find the defendant guilty. And meet to him the punishment his treachery deserves. Well, Edmond Dantes, you still have nothing to say. If you're silent, it means your death. But that's impossible, monsieur. What? As long as my friend de Villefort is finally through, perhaps it's time I did speak. I have one witness who will testify that this trial is and must be a mockery, a farce. Who is this witness? The king's attorney, Monsieur de Villefort. Monsieur de Villefort, I'll ask you to examine this paper and this signature. Is it yours? Uh, it is. And you, gentlemen of the jury, examine the document. It is the death certificate of Edmond Dantes, signed by the king's attorney himself. He's been prosecuting a man he knew was dead. <laughs> but I was not, gentlemen of the jury. I am Edmond Dantes. Yes, and Monsieur de Villefort knew I was alive. Why, then, did he affirm me dead? For the same reason that he sent me to the Chateau d'If without a trial. He was afraid. Afraid that if I were given a trial, a man named Nortier would be exposed as a Bonapartist. And Nortier was the father of de Villefort himself. That was why I died, according to this paper. That was why I went to jail for a crime I did not commit, as did thousands of others in recent years. Here is the record, gentlemen. The record of corruption that is the career of Raymond de Villefort. Read it, my friends, and then judge which of us is traitor to France and to his king. All hands aloft. Stand ready to cast off. And I promise to take the princess home. I'm not sure that I know how to say goodbye, Mercedes. You needn't, Edmond. You're free again. You can stay. I don't know. I may see France again someday. I can't be sure. Edmond Dantes has been dead so long. 
will take time for me to know if he can live again. He can, Edmond. Perhaps. Goodbye. Mother, will he ever come back? Yes, Albert. He'll come back. He said he would a long, long time ago. And that was Robert Montgomery and Josephine Hutchinson with Lewis Stone, Sidney Blackmer and Paul Lucas. What a cast. In Lux's version of The Count of Monte Cristo. Superb. Well, thank you for joining me for this slice of classic Hollywood this week. If you want more, don't forget that you can get instant access to over 70 of these shows unheard on the main podcast as well as a whole universe of bonus content over at www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret. You'll also get an invitation to the weekly film club, movies provided, as well as both barrels of October's film festival. If you sign up quickly, you'll be able to join us for this weekend's screening. We're watching a movie from 1931, as voted for by you. And I can tell you that while I've been recording this show, the public enemy has pulled ahead of a free soul. So sign up and get your vote in as soon as you can. Details are coming up at the end of this show in case you missed them, so listen on, or you can click the link in the show notes. That is all from me this week. Until I speak to you again, take wonderful care of yourselves and those you love. Stay safe, people, and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.